Well, good morning, White Oak. Hello. Yeah, it's good to see each of you here today. I'm Rick Schonkweiler. I'm the senior minister at White Oak Christian Church, and I am so incredibly glad to be with you today. I, I want to say thank you to many of you who've been praying for me over the last week or so. Uh, I was able to do a teaching mission trip into Nepal to pastors and church leaders a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it was an exhausting flight. So this is me and 530 of my closest friends getting ready to get on an airplane to fly for 14 and a half hours. There's another four and a half hour flight with the other 400 friends that I had met. This is the Himalayas, though. That was made the whole trip uh, very much worthy. And of course, there's always food. Nepalis put ketchup on noodles. I just wanted you to know that. Yeah, interesting, just right before lunch. These are the guys that uh, traveled anywhere from 8 to 10 hours to be with us. And so I thought, man, my trip was awful and so on. But these guys, look how intense they are in paying attention to what it is that God wants to teach them. They were amazing. Uh, I thought I had it rough. This is a country that really is somewhat antagonistic to Christianity. And so these guys put their lives on the line every week whenever they're ministering in their church, whenever they're preaching, whatever that might be. And, and for me, it's just as they're frost on my car on Sunday morning to get here. So I want to pray for you, and then let's get started into this text. Lord, we just thank you for today. I thank you for all who have gathered here, and I pray your blessing upon them as we read your word and as we study. Thank you, God, for the opportunities that you give to us here in this amazing country that uh, others don't have the privilege of. So help us not to squander it, to teach the message to every person here in the U.S. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the question I begin to ask is, why would these guys come eight to ten hours to hear from a stranger these teachings from the Word of God? And, and the question is also for us, why do we get up on a Sunday morning to come and to hear the message from the Word of God? I think the reasons are right here in this book, and particularly in this letter that we've been working on, the letter to the Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, a, a, a really a church hater who has changed his life radically because of Jesus coming into his life. And now he's a church planter, and now he is this amazing traveling around the Mediterranean area seeking to bring people to Jesus. And then these first 11 chapters are really heavy in theology. They're, they're heavy in the lordship of Jesus. The reminder that we're saved by grace, that it's not of our works that that happens, that we're justified by Jesus' sacrifice. And because of these truths, our destination is sure, and that is heaven with God, the new earth, the new heavens. That's our destination. We don't have to sit around and go, well, you know, I kind of hope maybe it might just slip in. And so he says very straightforwardly, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so how do we live like that? Well, it all starts with the why, and that's why Paul gives us these first 11 chapters. Because we have to have this foundation of the truth, that this is what God has done on our behalf, and it applies to me, and it applies to you in all aspects of my life. But knowing these truths, submitting to Jesus, deciding to become a Christian is the beginning, not the end. By that I mean that these truths, when we embrace them, change everything about us. My thinking, my words, my actions, my life. So Paul moves on into chapter 12 here. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 12 in Romans or bring that up on your app on your phone. 
Because he moves in chapter 12 from being this theologian and this Bible teacher to becoming a pastor and a shepherd to the people in the Roman church. If there's now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, as it says in chapter 8, and the righteous will live by faith, then what does that look like? How is that different for the Roman Christian compared to what his life was before? I mean, how are we really changed by these truths of the first 11 chapters? So here's what I know about Romans. As Paul's writing, he's writing to two people, two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And both of them recognized, they thought that their relationship to God was based upon their works. One group, it was because of privilege. They were born with the, in the right people, the Jews. For others, it was about power. The, the Roman Christians had been surrounded by power in the Roman Empire, and so they were the leaders of the church at this point in time, and they thought because they were the leaders, that's what God, that's how God had blessed them. And both need to realize that something has really changed. In both cases, it was always about their works. It was always about their circumstances, about their goodness, that God would love them because that God would accept them because, because they did right or because they were born right. But Paul says neither one of those systems works. Neither one of those are going to get you back to God. It's not about being proud of your accomplishments. Have you ever fallen into the performance trap? I mean, that, that, that trap, uh, if I just work long enough at my job, or if I go to church often, or if I serve in the church enough, or if I read through the Bible every year, If I perform a leadership role in the church, if I pray enough, if I'm a part of the right family, I have the right family, last name, if I go to the right school, if I'm in the right social group, all those kinds of things, that makes me right with God. It's so easy to fall into that trap. I want you to take your program and I want you to write on that front page where we have all the lines. On the left side, write selfish. On the right side, write selfless. Because what I see here in chapter 12 and beyond is that Paul is reminding us that we're on a journey that begins when Jesus changes our lives in baptism to becoming more and more like him. And the only thing that I can picture is this continuum from being selfish to selfless, from it being about me and about my works and how I can be good enough for God to the fact that I am selfless, that I'm giving myself to him in in complete obedience. Somebody asked me one time, how do I know, Rick, when, when I'm selfless enough for God? I said, I can't really answer that question, but I know that when you stretch out your arms on a cross and die for the sins of the world, you're getting close. And I haven't gotten even close to that yet. Jesus' righteousness is applied to me when he stretches out his arms. That's a totally selfless act. What's going on in my life that's selfless? And so as we look through the chapter 12, and we look on through the end of this book, we will see over and over again that Paul talks about certain behaviors that happen because we are becoming more and more selfless, accepting Jesus by, as Lord by faith and receiving his grace as you're immersed, as you're baptized into him. That's all tremendous, but Paul is, has given us the reasons why it's reasonable for this teaching to be true and to bring it into our lives. But now, He's going to talk to those struggles of how my life changes. We start here in chapter 12, verse 1. It's on the screen. Here's what it says. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how is the mind formed? Paul goes on and says in verse 3, he says very simply here, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, Paul recognizes that the one barrier for our lives is this aspect of pride. Because pride has this tendency to elevate myself. And even as I became a Christian, there might have been in my life this fact that, hey, now I'm on God's side. Now I'm on the right side. Now I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take the world by storm. Or maybe, God, you're so lucky to have me on your team, so here I am. It can also have a flip side, which says, I'm too bad for God to really change. Pride has both sides of that coin. And, and here's what Paul is challenging with. He says, pride is built on power and privilege, but our lives are to be built on sacrifice. So our big idea today is this. I am not proud. I am not proud. I'm not going to stand on my laurels. I'm not going to stand on my, my personal victories to say that this makes me right with God. Romans teaches how justified people live and why they don't go on sinning because of the grace that's in their lives. The first 11 chapters emphasize the deeper spiritual why I follow Jesus. And chapter 12 emphasizes the practical, the nitty-gritty, the daily how that I live. So how do we live this out? How do justified sinners love each other? Romans 12 teaches that that a relational Christian life is what we live. And so I just want to call you to live them out with each other, to live them out in our life groups, to live them out in daily practice, in all the ways that you relate to other people. And, and when I say each other, I'm not thinking only of the people who are here, whether it's in this service or in the, the first service. Uh, that circle of acquaintances that I have, or even that circle of Christianity and Christian friends that I have. When, when I think about... This, I think also about those who are outside the each other at this point in time. Folks who haven't decided to follow Jesus yet, and how am I building relationships to bring them in? The, the term each other in a Christ-like loving church in an area like Ross is never static. It's always changing and growing. It's a sign of serious spiritual sickness in this city and in this church. If your circle of friends is static. What I mean by this is I was having a conversation recently with one of our, uh, one of our young couples. Everybody's young compared to me, but uh, they've been a part of our church for about 15, 20 years almost. And they said what we experienced was when we first came, there was a group of young adults that got together, and then we were young couples because many of us were married, and we started having our kids. And, and they said, today, today we realize that none of that initial group are still at White Oak. They're all serving God around the world. We have people in Indianapolis. We have people on the West Coast. We have people in West Africa. We have people all around the world that are serving Jesus, that were part of that life group. And what happened was God increased their circle, increased their relationships, and moved them from one place to another. So here's what I have to say to you, Ross. If you're a part of White Oak Christian Church, Ross Campus, 
be aware God's moving. And he may not have you in this same place in the next 10 years. Now that's exciting to me, but it's also scary. Because as I'm looking for ways in which God increases my circle of friendship, sometimes he moves me to another spot. Other times he just moves me to other groups. Let's continue on with Romans 12 here. It's, it's filled with relational instructions. If there's one immediate and easy to see message in this chapter, it's this. Justified sinners live in relationship and work hard to make those relationships durable and mutually beneficial. Being a part of a church is hard work. It is not a panacea. It is not everything's just taken care of. Wipe it all, you know, kind of polish it up and look good. It's hard work. So let's soak our minds for a few minutes into this whole chapter to see if God would waken us to give joyfully serious thought about being a part of a life group and loving other people in the way this chapter says to do it. Let's go back to verse 1. Here's what it says in verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there are about six things in that one verse that we could land on, but I just want to point out two. The first one is, notice this phrase, phrase, by the mercies of God. That as a believer, I have now experienced the mercy of God. All the practical instructions in this chapter are introduced by the mercies of God. Because God's been merciful to me, this is how I begin to act with others. When mercies have abounded, you don't conform to the world. You present your bodies to God to do his will in relationship with others. I am radically changed. So another way to ask is, how do justified sinners love each other? It's to say this, how do people moved and carried by Mercy, love each other. Well, what does a mercy-moved church look like? So this is foundational. This is why Paul starts this in verse 1. Don't miss it. The whole chapter stands under this phrase, by the mercies of God. Everything we do in this chapter, we do it by the mercies of God. By the effect of past mercies and in the hope of future mercies. So we're mercy-moved Mercy-carried, mercy-shaped people. All all of our life groups should have this meaning, that they are meetings of mercy-formed people. We live by mercy. We minister by mercy. All of us need mercy, and when we need it, we share it. One of the things that I appreciate about the Ross campus, and I watch it happen at Coleraine, but I definitely watch it happen here, that, that when there's a difficulty and a struggle in this community, because we've been here for 10 years and we're in the fabric of the Ross community, oftentimes community leaders call us when there's a difficulty. I appreciate the way Danny led out with the prayer service for Lila and for healing and for strength and for encouragement for that family. A couple of years ago when there was a suicide in the, in the school district, Nathan was called to address a number of people. A couple of years before that, maybe a, there was a murder. And, and, and White Oak was the, was the group that came around hurting people and encouraged them to take their next steps with God. A mercy-filled, mercy-formed, mercy-loving church does that in their communities. We, we have our life because of mercy. We are sinners saved by grace. 
And we live by mercy. Our friendships are formed by mercy. Our marriages are formed by mercy. Parenting is formed by mercy. Civic responsibility is formed by mercy. Don't forget to vote. That's today's PSA. Yeah. Race relations are formed by mercy. Neighborliness is formed by mercy. Vocational endeavors are formed by mercy. Missions are formed by mercy. Every relationship we have needs to have foundationally in it mercy as opposed to all the ways in which we respond to people in anger and mistrust. So what's that look like in relationships? You know, I find it fascinating that Paul, with all this high theology we do in the first 11 chapters, he gets down really deep into our relationships with what the effect should be. So jump down to verse 9 with me. I'll be looking at some of the other verses as we go along and just make quick little comments as those happening and just really asking God to waken us to the joy and rightness of being in life with a group of people. Verse 9, a life formed by mercy loves without hypocrisy. Here's what he says, right? Let love be genuine. If we live by mercy... If our small groups are meetings of mercy-formed people, our relational life will be real, authentic, genuine. There'll be no shams, no fraud, no pretense, no posing, no posturing, no counterfeit, no duplicity, no deceit. What you see is what you get because God is forming me into that person he wants me to be. Love each other and be real. Be genuine. Now, let me tell you, if there's no other place that we can let down our guard... And say, God, God is working on this. This part's broken in me, and I need, I need your prayers. I need that encouragement. If there's no other place where I can be open and honest and listening to what God's trying to do in my life, it ought to be here. Now, this is not some kind of navel-gazing self-help group. This is listening to the Holy Spirit be at work in my life. And I need help in that. I can't see this by myself. My glasses still are real foggy. But whenever I ask you to look into my life, you help me with that. That's why God brought us together. That's why he formed a church. That's why it's not just an individual relationship with Jesus that we have, but it is a church responsibility that we live in together. We need life groups where people are real and where people are safe. There are two reasons why we put on a mask in front of people. One is that we've not come to be satisfied in the mercy of God, and so we fear what other people think about us. Our inner life is not sustained by the precious, all-satisfying mercy of God. And so we have to prop ourselves up with the approval of others. And that means wearing a mask that they will approve. That's why we wear a mask. Second reason is this, that we just don't trust people to show us mercy if we're real in our weaknesses and failures. It is not being weak. It is not being less of a man. It is not being less of a person to share a weakness with someone and ask for that prayer. Now, it probably should not matter to us nearly as much as it does what other people think of us, merciful or not. God is for us, Scripture says, so who can be against us? But in the real world, we are afraid. Right or wrong, that's reality. And we ought to show mercy to each other. Life groups, classes, conversations in our lobbies ought to be mercy-formed and safe. No fear of rejection. No fear of gossip. No fear of racism or prejudice. So when Paul says in verse 9, let love be genuine, he's calling for at least two things. First is 
Be satisfied in the mercy of God. You don't need the strokes and approval of others. By the mercies of God, be free of craving approval. Man, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that is so dangerous today is that we pull out the phone and we see how many likes to my last Instagram. <laughs> how many people are following me on Facebook? Who's shouting out and retweeting my tweets? And, and that's how we see approval. We're caught in the midst of that web. The other thing that Paul implies here is that we be so formed by mercy that we've received that we are spring-loaded to give mercy to others. Now, when you see a hurting person, do you step out? I mean, Logan shared a part of his heart today. Can you imagine? You're halfway through your sophomore year and the school says we're done in December. You've got to go find someplace else to finish up your degree. There are several of us in the, in the uh, White Oak system that are graduates of Cincinnati Christian University. We're alumni and alumni. It, it's painful to think about our friends who are teaching there. It's difficult to walk along with Logan and others that we hoped would be a part of that legacy. And so I want to just encourage you today that when you see Logan in the lobby as you leave today, just, just put a hand on him. Just, just say, I'm praying for you, buddy, along with all the other people at CCU. Been around for 95 years. We thought it'd be around for another 95 years. And, and that's all changing. So I'm spring-loaded for mercy. Man, as soon as I heard that note, I was sending emails to friends who are on staff. I was encouraging, trying to encourage students, recent graduates, all of those kinds of things. Because that's part of what happens to me, is that God changes me with his mercy. You might say that we should all be so content in the mercy of God that we don't need mercy from each other, but that's not how God designs the church. Rather, we ought to say, let us show each other so much mercy that we see the reality of God's mercy in each other and we become content in Him. That's the way God designed the church. You don't become all that you're supposed to be on your own. And and then bring that into church and into your life group. Instead, you come into church and into fellowship of justified, mercy-moved sinners, and you become what you're supposed to be. Then you go out and display that to the world. Notice what Paul says in in verse 1. He says very simply that that you're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That that you are then, by testing, you discern what the will of God is. See, that doesn't say that when you're transformed, you know the Word of God. It says, in your testing, you will know what God's will is. Did you read that before? That means in the difficult times. That means in the hard times. That means in the good times. You begin to discover and see what is the will of God in your life. It's not that God goes, zing, here's the will of my for the rest of your life. No, it's in the midst of the difficulties and the real-world life that he teaches that. And I need people around me to help me see that as that part goes along. You know, when I, when I think through this, this whole challenge of I am not proud, which is our big idea, and sacrifice, can, can I just shout out to Darren today as he's leading worship? The guy has a, has a fever. He doesn't feel good. I, I make him stand three to four rooms away from me today so that I don't catch it too. Man, wasn't it powerful in his leadership because he's willing to sacrifice his comfort to be here today? 
It's not for a paycheck. You don't show up and do what he did today for a paycheck. You do that because you love God. You love the people of God. And you're not proud. And he will feel really weird that I said that. So don't go try and lay hands on him today. He's contagious. All right? But be praying for him. Verse 10 says this, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In our relationships, there should be this growing devotion to each other. And this affection that grows, it can't happen in the same way in a large gathering. Even in this room here today, there's too many of us to show that brotherly affection and and honor and those kinds of things that God wants to do. And so that's why he brings us into smaller groups. Brotherly affection, love, these are not emotionless actions. These are things that grow out of a healthy, good family. So let's draw people into the experience of family. Some of us had bad relationships in our family. We do not know what love means, what, how love is shown between people. Because of the mercies of God, we can bring people in together and begin to show that. Let's draw people into that experience. Young, old, married, single, rich, poor, different ethnic backgrounds. Become family for each other. Jesus said this would happen for those who follow him. He said that you will have brothers and sisters and mothers and children a hundredfold if you will follow me. And that's what White Oak is, a family. I love that model and that image of the church. And then he says, I'll do one another in showing honor. There there should be a growing family closeness and affection, but the intimacy and affection are not the only good way we relate. There's honor. Do we honor each other? There's a dignity about every human being created in the image of God that our culture does not know. We have that argument around the unborn. We have that argument around the sick and affirmed and older people who are just draining our economy that you'll hear about people who aren't quite like us. And yet the scripture says we are to honor others. We are to outdo one another in showing honor. So you're forgetting the heading of this chapter that by the mercies of God, I urge you to honor one another that even as sin mars the image of God in us, he still says, because I showed you mercy, show others mercy. Mercy covers the defects that have entered the God-given dignity. And treats others with a sense of intimacy and honor. And then he goes on, he says in verse 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's become practical in our love. Meet each other's needs. And that's how justified sinners love. We listen for those needs and then we seek to meet them. That's hospitality. Can you believe how broad the scope of Paul's concerns are? He's done all this weighty stuff in chapter 1 through 11. He's talked about the fact that we're sinners. He's talked about the grace of God. He's talked about how the blood of Christ covers all of our sins. And then he gets in to showing hospitality. I mean, that's the impact of Jesus on my life. He changes everything from what it was before to common, ordinary, all too rare practice of hospitality. Is your home open? Single people, do you spread a table before friends and couples? Married people, do you watch out for single folks and young ones and old ones and middle-aged, elderly? Do you put a pot of soup on Saturday night and invite people over for lunch on Sunday? Do you pray as you start to church today, God, is there someone you want to put in my path that I'm going to invite to lunch? It might even be the preacher. I'm just kidding. Some of you are. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you put a pot of soup on, you get a few styrofoam bowls and plastic 
uh, spoons, then you don't have a whole lot of cleanup to do, right? And you invite people over and show them hospitality. Then there's this great emphasis in Romans 12 on not returning evil for evil, but instead blessing those who treat you poorly and doing your best as much as it depends on you to live in peace with everybody. Does that sound like America today? Man, the stuff we write on social media about each other. The comments that I, that I mean, I'm trolling you. I, I just don't have any, any you know, I'm not proud. I'm trolling you. I see the things you say to each other. Sometimes it's in jest, but sometimes it's pointed. People who have a different political party, different outlook on life, different skin color, different community. Paul says, stop it. Because you are united in Christ. Look at what he says in, in several verses here as we, we start to see this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is that how you see life? Because of the one who stretched out his arms and died for all of us, he did all those things right there, and he's put the power of the Holy Spirit in you to be able to live those things out as well. I mean, why emphasize on treating well those who treat us badly? Because mercy demands it. That's mercy. And whether we're a mercy-molded church will be seen best in how we respond to our adversaries. There's more for you to dig out in chapter 12. I just encourage you to take take it home today and just spend some time in this chapter. You can dig them out and see what Romans says about mercy-formed relationships. But it starts out with, I am not proud. I want to jump back up to verses 4 and 5 before we close today. Notice this. It says, For as one in one body we are members, many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So that, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Notice in verse 5 it says one body. It, in Christ. What this means is that union with Christ it made it possible for us to be righteous and to be justified. And it's the same union with Christ that allows us to live in relationship with each other. It changes all things. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so how can we condemn each other? In Christ, our condemnation is taken away and we're justified. And in Christ, we who are many are now one. We're unified. Because that's where mercy is, in Christ Without him, we're all hopeless and undone, unjustified, unacceptable, unsaved, unforgiven. And without him, we are without the sweetness of this mercy-saturated friendship. No Jesus, no righteousness. No Jesus, no church. Therefore, justified sinners love each other with a God-ordained, Christ-created, mercy-formed togetherness called the church, the body of Christ and the life groups of the church are meetings of mercy-formed people. So I want to encourage you that your next step at White Oak is to be a part of a life group. Maybe, maybe there's not one that's ready to form. You form the huddle. You go look for a few people and say, we've got to get together and get this right. Because the kingdom of God is based upon these relationships. It's an exciting step to make as the Holy Spirit reforms you, renews you, 
into the person that God wants you to be. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it's in this moment that we're reminded again just how much you work in our lives. And I ask now that you would bless the reading of your word and this study to bring us into relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, for this blood-bought fellowship that is here in the Ross community. And may we be a mercy molded, formed, and alive in our community. May people say, why don't Christian church a place of mercy? Because Jesus is alive with them. It's in his name we pray. Amen.